Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Okay, today's topic in our series on neurodiverse families is really about trauma and how it shapes our neurobiology and our brains. And so my guest today is Dr. Chuck Geddes, who has worked extensively in both the fields of child and youth mental health and child welfare for the last 20 years. Um, He's the founder of Complex Trauma Resources, and he has developed the Complex Care and Intervention Program, CCI, as a way of embedding a trauma-focused therapeutic perspective into the care of kids who are in our foster care. So Dr. Geddes provides um, a bunch of ways to access learning. And one way in which he's provided that is through online courses and in-person education. And he trains both social workers, parents, but also educators and mental health clinicians all across Canada. So both Chuck and I agreed that it would be really fitting Um, in this series to be able to give easier access to people who this really matters for. So both of us have decided we would give uh, at at a discount rate um, access to our online courses. So if you're interested in that, make sure you either um, subscribe to the podcast page so that we can email those to you and give you all the course details, or you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram and you'll get that there as well. Um, So without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome, Dr. Geddes. Good morning, Karen. Thanks for inviting me to your to be part of your group here. Yeah, it's been a great series so far. Um, this is going to add such a unique piece to to the suite of topics that we've been uh, talking about, and I know it's really relevant to a lot of people who I'm in touch with because I work um, a lot with parents who are either adoptive parents or uh, foster caregivers and who desperately want to better understand how to love and care for their traumatized kids. So um, maybe to begin with, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a bit about your work, uh, many people would not know about the CCI program yet, but probably desperately would love to hear about it. So I'm just going to open the door there. Could you share a bit about your findings there and what you've been doing? Um, Sure. It's been an exciting uh, adventure really over the past uh, 10 years. So um, as you mentioned, I work within the child and youth mental health system and uh, I've had lots of different roles from uh, clinician, psychologist, uh, up to a team leader, up to um, kind of a regional psychology consultant. And you know, one of the things that the managers from our foster care system were concerned about is that too many of our mental health teams didn't seem to know what to do with the kids who were in the foster care system or maybe um, post-adoption. who were coming back with really um, often very big behaviors, very big emotions, and uh, you know, our teams were struggling with how to deal with them. And in fact, some of the mental health teams actually would say that you're not eligible for services. We don't provide services to kids with these kinds mm-hmm. of um, you know, sort of big behavioral issues. And so um, so out of that, I was actually asked by the interior region in the province with MCFD to, uh, to find out what's out there, what are people doing around the world, and what can we do better? What can we learn from that, and what can we do better? And it was really out of that that the Complex Care and Intervention Program uh, was formed. And uh, so what we've been doing for the past 10 years is taking what we learned about complex trauma, the idea that 
um, kids who've experienced multiple types of traumas over multiple times, multiple years in their lives often, particularly if it's happening in the first you know, five or six years of life when their brain's growing and developing so quickly, that if we, um, if we understood the effect of trauma on that brain development and then looked at our kids differently with that kind of lens and then brought through both our assessments would be different, our interventions would be different. Yeah. And it's turned out that um, it was sort of an experiment as we were starting to pull this together. And it's turned out that it makes a huge difference. So for kids who, um, uh, within our foster care system or uh, adoption, whether that's from foster care or internationally, you know, often kids are coming from such hard places. And what we've learned is if we if we take this understanding about trauma and complex trauma and that and that this kind of core idea that this has affected how their brains have developed and how their brains are organized. If we take that, that idea and, and um, sort of use that as the, the, the foundation that we're standing on to look at everything, to understand what we're seeing and then to uh, develop a dimension, turns out that that works over and over yeah. and over. So we've um, encountered, now it's been uh, almost 12 years that I've been uh, running this program. My team's worked with well over 300 children and youth across the province. And these are often children who are referred to us because nothing else is working. So the, so it's not like the worst of the worst necessarily, but it's kids that are really, really struggling. About half of the children that we've worked with are in um, their behaviors that they've gotten so difficult that they're in staffed care. So staffed kind of group home care as opposed yeah. to in foster care. Um, we work with, uh, now it's probably about 25 different families where they adopted and then a number of years later are finding that they feel like their family's falling apart and nothing that they're doing is seems to be uh, helping their kids. Um, and they're just, you know, just feeling so much on the edge and so, so yeah. stressed out. And so we've worked with those families as well. But what we're finding is after, you know, 300 plus cases that the majority of the time that we're able to see growth and development for kids in uh, across different areas of their life and including a reduction in these sort of big behaviors, big emotions that are so challenging. Um, I know that part of your, uh, that this particular sort of series relates to kids with neurodevelopmental, neurodiverse children, right? So children yes. who probably are getting a number of different diagnoses as they go along. Yeah. That's one of the things that we found too, is that when we apply this trauma lens, it often helps families and caregivers and, and teams around the kids to, um, to make sense of all these different diagnoses, that, the different labels that kids have been given along the way. Um, and it turns out that uh, oftentimes when we apply these trauma principles, that we find that they actually, the children no longer meet the criteria for certain things that we would have thought were sort of permanent uh, disabilities or permanent issues. Amazing. And so it's been a, yeah, so it's been a tremendously exciting uh, uh, journey over uh, yeah. 10 12 years now we've we've uh, trained hundreds of folks within our child welfare system to uh, to run this program with children and, and worked with over 300 with with actually like absolutely incredible uh, results out of that unbelievable unbelievable and yet intuitively believable like i i don't think it's a, it's one of those scientific findings that kind of feel shocking necessarily but but also so important for us to reshift our our approach and our thinking right so i i and i and i know from experience how many parents 
say the very thing that it's the confusion or the, the inability to parent well that I intuitively want to do, but I can't because it's met with these attachment um, kind of resistant behaviors that it, it feels impossible. Like, I don't know where to take this. And I think as a, you know, I, re- I actually remember as a clinician, because I was working for the Chilliwack team when you began this process uh, in the interior. And I remember uh, working with Dr. Rob Lees and, and Dr. Don Napton, and we were in board meetings talking about how do we fold in, a, how do we create this CCI development piece embedded in the way we do work with our, our kids at a system-wide level at in child and youth mental health. And I, I remember feeling intense relief in that moment. I mean, that was so long ago, but I remember sitting at that table going, yes, finally, (laughs) because it felt like as a clinician, we really did not have the tools. It was not the training structure that we were receiving. It was not. um, And and yet we as individuals all knew there's trauma here. Like that wasn't Mm -hmm. a mystery, but, but how to pull these pieces together and say, as a system, how are we operating to give holistic care to kids from a trauma-informed lens. That was new. Yeah, it was deeply appreciated. I remember that pivot point. Well, we started, we sat with our assessment forms. We were like, how are we going to change these? These don't fit anymore, right? (laughs) So good. So good. Yeah. Um, It's it's interesting, actually. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm just, the thing is interesting. uh, This is a bit of an aside, but, um, you know, so often as we've talked about these principles and what's happened in a child's brain, and then how we need to look at them and understand them differently, and then how that needs to change a practice. When we share that, for the most part, we get a lot of people going, oh, aha, this makes uh-huh. sense now. This is what yes. we need to do. And I think what we've, the struggle has been uh, for us often, not so much to do with an individual child, but it's more like, how do we shift our system? And so we yep. really um, we always started out with that idea, actually, how do we shift this practice within our child welfare system? And so um, part of the, what we did with the CCI program is we structured it. So when we get, when we're invited into a, um, to join a case where everyone's struggling, everyone's exhausted, things aren't working out, people are frustrated, yeah. they're kind of giving up hope, that the structure of the CCI program actually helps with that. So we initially do some trauma education for the whole team so that we can get um, more on the same place with um, some of the terms we're using, with an understanding of how trauma affects the kids. And then we go through, and then so we're joining a care team, basically all those adults that are caring for this child. The second thing we do is we then do an assessment together. And so we've developed what we call the seven developmental domains. So seven different areas of development that we know this complex trauma can really affect. So it's everything from the basic kind of uh, way your nervous system works and your physiological system to um, how you manage stress, to emotions, to attachment to um, identity is a really big one and obviously uh, behavior uh, because we see big behavior in the outside but also what's going on in your in the thinking part of your brain in terms of cognitions your language your learning your memory so so we look at children across this um, assessment and we're trying to get a picture of where's this child's development right now across those developmental domains and then we're trying to build how do we build that sort of developmental opportunity to see a child grow and mature in these different areas and it's so when we do that so it's so often even the folks who maybe when we did the trauma piece they would be a little bit um, reluctant to embrace it too quickly but then when we do the assessment and all of a sudden we're talking about the child that you know and the experiences you're having every day in your home or in your school with this child and then we start to plug that into this assessment tool you can you can just see people go 
oh, this now makes so much more sense. And then interventions, as I said, are sort of based on that, right? And so that structure of the education together to get on the same page, to start to use the same language, to use that language to inform our decisions, and then this assessment, individualized assessment for the child, and then the interventions. It's it's built to try and change the system. Yeah. And I wish it was, uh, we'd gotten further with that. I think at the line level, your average social worker, your average mental health clinician goes, yes, this really fits. Um, somehow yeah. when we move up, uh, a couple layers oh, of the ministry, it gets more complicated. So anyway, that was I a long aside. Practice today, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> I get you. Yeah. One of the can things you, that's, so, that's you, been yeah. so interesting, sorry. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's been so interesting is just to see the perspective change of the adults that are working with the child. So at the point when we're brought in, you know, the types of terms that people, the things we hear about kids are, they're manipulative, they're yep. willful. They've got this, they do something bad and they've got this smile on their face. They don't have any remorse. I'm really worried that this child is going to, you know, yeah. uh, they're going to end up hurting people down the line. And there's just this huge amount of alarm and, yeah. and these really negative kind of connotations about kids that parks the reason for their behavior really in the thinking cortex. It's the, it's the willfulness, manipulation. Those right. kinds they're of planning terms. to be difficult. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's so helpful when we can shift that and start to talk about what what's going on in the child's brain actually lower down in the brain that's driving this kind of type of behavior and to understand it differently. And I think then what happens is people gain more empathy for the for their child. And for sure. More patience. I often think with parents when I try and simplify, because you can feel so flooded when you're in a point of crisis with your kids and then you meet with an expert and then that person gives you a ton of uh, complex information because they want to download this to them for really good reasons and feel like there's purpose to this. And and the parent themselves is living out of their <laughs> right lower brain. And we cannot synthesize that information when we're depleted and overwhelmed and run down and feel uh, at times abused, right? Where it it has beaten mm-hmm. us. So as as a parent who has has lived in that zone every once in a while, has dipped their toe in that deep end. Um, I, I try and go back there sometimes and think, okay, what would I, what what do I need to hear at that point, and how simplified can I make this? And I go back to the statement of, it's moving from won't to can't. It's not that the child mm-hmm. won't do it; it's they can't do it. Right? Yes. And and that's really the difference between the upper and lower brain, right? It's the, the it, you require the, the upper brain to be able to decide if you're doing something. And so that's where that's where the the won't lives. If they're going to choose something, they have to be in that space to be able to even do that. Yeah. So I, I appreciate a, that. Yeah. Just to follow up on what you're saying there, so I have a couple of images that I can share with you that might be able to embed in the video. So I'll just kind of talk through those to just yes. try and simplify this for the audience. So the yeah. first is, if you imagine that your brain, let's imagine that your brain is sitting in your head like an upside down triangle. So the pointy part at the bottom and the big part of the brain at the top. And that the the lowest part of the brain is that lower brain, as you talked about. It's the primal brain, primitive brain. It's the... Um, it's really the, the survival part of the brain that's at the low end. Then in the middle part of the brain, we've described that as being the, the relational, emotional kind of brain. And then the yeah. top part, the cortex, is a thinking part of the brain. So pretty simple kind of idea that 
brain sits in your head like this upside down triangle. And we've got these layers of survival brain, emotional, relational brain, and then logical brain. And yeah. you said sort of up, upstairs brain, and it would be another way to think about it. So when we look at children, if we think that that upstairs part of the brain is where it's what's driving behavior, then we use those kinds of terminology that they won't do this. They, that yeah. They're manipulative, those kinds of things. What we've learned through um, looking at the effects of complex trauma is that the, for, for many of the children that you, your parents are caring for and your caregivers are caring for, that actually their brains organize differently, that their brains organize not like an upside down triangle, but like a triangle with the biggest uh. part of the brain being that survival brain at the bottom, then the emotional relational brain kind of layered on that. That's where attachment kind of things would come in. And then, but the very tip of the brain, the top part is the logical part of the brain. And for so many of our kids that that logical part of the brain is actually offline because one of the main effects of trauma and these repeated traumatic experiences, these repeated experiences of feeling unsafe. And that's so whether something's directed at you as a child, someone's hurting you, or it's happening around you, there's chaos, there's fighting, there's domestic violence, um, there's a, hundreds of moves, there's you know, whatever the things yeah. are that help you to leave you feeling unsafe. That survival yeah. part of the brain, that bottom layer, actually is the part that's driving you through the day. And I, one of the, that's a, just such an important distinction because our job always over and over and over again is how do we calm down that survival part of the brain, help the child to feel safe and connected and calm enough that the thinking part of the brain can sort of come online, which it often isn't. Yeah. A couple of things come to mind when you describe that. I, I was imagining the other uh, model that has a triangle involved of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and thinking about the basis and how much of our safety-driven needs are required prior to any other version of development. We can't move up to healthy relationships and self-actualization and having good, healthy boundaries with people and all that stuff if we cannot have consistency in nurturing, a consistency in stable environment, right? And that makes so much sense if we overlay that, that that big basement, that platform needs to have some solid concrete before you can put any kind of scaffolding or structure on top of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, um, just to add to that, um, it, we, we're talking about the effects of trauma, but you've yeah. got... Um, parents caring for kids who are for different reasons stressed or they've got it may even classify for a diagnosis around something let's say with autism or um, FASD or something else where that stress response is activated because in them as well so it may not be because of trauma but that stress response is activated because the world's moving too fast I don't understand this I'm not reading processing not read facial cues I can't right. process it. And so that's very, very stressful. And Stress so what happens inducing. when totally. Yeah. Right. And so when we have another image I'll give you is kind of the idea of a stress staircase. But if we think about sort of uh, moving up a stress staircase where you've got maybe 10 steps and we're starting low down on the staircase, we're in the green zone, we're in the kind of mellow, calm place and we're we're feeling yeah. safe, we're able to be connected. Um, we're uh, we add to that a little bit of excitement and move up to kind of a yellow zone maybe we've got some excitement we're enjoying this we're engaged where that's where our, most of our creativity would come from um, yeah. but as we move up that staircase we add levels of stress now all of a sudden we're getting into kind of an orange zone we're getting into a place where that 
original kind of excitement energy is now nervous. Uh It's tense. It's feeling a bit overwhelmed. I'm hypervigilant. Exactly. And when we, when that continues, then high up on that stress staircase, we're so quick then kids are so quick to move to that place of fight or flight or freeze because they're overwhelmed. The physiological arousal system is overwhelmed. And that's one of the things that we've learned about complex trauma is that those traumatic experiences actually, um, like sort of pre-program the brain to be very reactive to stress. So those repeated traumatic, just too uh, overwhelming experiences, it's too much for me, I'm not coping, I don't feel safe. All those experiences, what happens is that the stress alarm systems in the brain are become highly uh, sensitive, that you yeah. end up scanning the environment because the child's looking for that little micro expression on your face where your eyebrow raises and they've learned somewhere in their past, oh, an eyebrow raises. Path to danger. The next thing is I get yep. yelled on. Yeah, absolutely. The next thing I'm going to get hit or some combination yeah. of those things. And so our, so our kids, when we talk with the caregivers, they actually describe that the children are living really high up that stress staircase as their baseline. And it doesn't okay. take them too much to fly off the handle yeah. at the top end. And yeah. what happens is caregivers, we go right up the stress staircase with the kids if they're not careful. Mm-hmm. So as they're going up, we tend to go up as well. And then we all of a sudden, yeah. we, we match it. And as we go up the stress staircase, then we're actually moving down in our brain. So we're less, we're not processing language well. We're not remembering well. We're not um, able to manage our emotions the same way because we're actually getting yeah. down in the brain. So, yeah. so we're, you know, one of the things that I think we've learned and one of the main principles we'd say is that there's two things that we have to do well. We call these our our therapeutic bookends, that we have to work really hard at at decreasing the stress on the child. So we're intervening all through the day in a preventive kind of way to help the child to regulate and regulate and regulate and regulate all through the day. Um, And so, and that's part of that is, I like to sort of come at this actually from three different directions, kind of think about what can we do outside them where we can take away extra stresses, take yep. away extra appointments, take away busyness, yeah. environmental things, exactly. And then we think about what can we do bottom up. So with, so these are using you know, sensory regulating connected activities with an adult that cares for them to quiet them down, to quiet them down, to quiet them down. And so, and to do that proactively throughout the day. On a, I, you know, I think about kids that are really struggling and parents that are really struggling. We're recommending you do this every hour for five or 10 minutes. Let's find something that's calming. And we're trying to take that child from step eight and drop him down to step seven because that little different, that little change might be enough to head off a big explosion. Um, And eventually, eventually, if we can move them more and more down that stress staircase, it helps them to reset and be less reactive, be able to use their thinking before they react. Yeah. 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 So the so I said sort of outside in the environmental piece, then bottom up, which would be that okay. you know, these kind of sensory sorts of things. Um, yeah. you know, I think about um, I've got a home right now where we've got a, a little girl who's uh, very very dysregulated, quickly moves to a place of frustration and these pretty epic meltdowns. She gets aggressive with the caregivers and that sort of thing. And so at every transition through the day, we're thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, every 25, 30 minutes, we're thinking, let's go through a five minute thing with her that brings her down. And so we've got a little sequence that the caregivers use called the move, work, breathe. And so within about a five minute window, they'll do this kind of high energy activity. 
So yep. let's say um, I just was watching them do this the other day. So they lay, so they lay down on the floor with the girl. They put their, she gets to choose what some of these things are. They, um, she says, today we're going to do the bicycle. So the bicycle, they lay on their backs, they put their feet up, and they ride the bike, ride the bike, ride the intense bike, movement. and they're yep. intense movement. They do that for about fifteen seconds, <sighs> oh, and then they mm. stop and they take a couple deep breaths, mm. and then they do a stretch, a stretch way out, and they, and you see them stretch, 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 and hold it. And take a big breath, and then that so it's breathing. move, and then the work yeah. is the stretch, and then the Expansive. breathing. So these kind of mm. yes, yeah, so this move, work, breathe, for instance, is one of these things that we insert with her mm. every time we're moving to a transition, and transitions are hard. Um, yeah, and it's a signal to us when she can go through that. It's not only calming to her, but it's a signal to us that she's ready to move on. If she can't do that, if she's refusing it, then we've probably waited a bit too long. And we just right. need to kind of let her kind of sort it on her own before we write that out because she's yeah. not not ready. Yeah. Um, another thing that's been yeah. just, just sorry, I, I give another example. Another Go thing ahead. that's been brilliant for us is to think about when children are sleeping, and I, we've learned a lot of what we learned from Dr. Bruce Perry from the Child Trauma mm-hmm. Academy. Yep. But one of the things that their work got me thinking about was how, um, you know, at night we've got kids who are kind of a captive audience. And according to Dr. Perry, if we can do, if we can provide stimulation that's patterned, repetitive, and rhythmic, that that kind of stimulation is something that quiets the brain, calms the brain, and it actually helps the brain to integrate and organize. So when we think about, um, I think let's say uh, children where there's been prenatal problems. So during pregnancy, mom was stressed, mom was maybe abusing substances, there was maybe there's domestic violence, couch surfing, whatever else, mom's under the stress. So that's what the infant was experiencing in utero was all this ups and downs of stress in the mom. So I think what one of the things that we love to do then is we try and introduce something through the night that's going to provide regulation like that. So we we had this adopted family we were working with with a little uh, little boy was five and uh, the family was exhausted because he would not sleep for more than an hour and a half, maybe two hours at a time, and then was yep. up through the rest of the night. He had to be in their room too. He couldn't be separated from them, and they were just exhausted. And so we we talked about this, you know, trying to quiet that stress response system down. And we ended up getting what we call a heartbeat puppy, so a little puppy stuffy with a heart with a heartbeat in it. And so they gave that to him, and we came back and visited with him towards the end of the week. And we said, how is it going? How is, you know, is, is it made any difference on sleep? And they said, he's sleeping through the night. And oh, we, we were there. Goodness. They've been our greatest. <laughs> yes. And, and often, you know, not just sleeping through the night, but waking in the morning happier because they've gone to a, they've been able to calm down in the nighttime, get away from that yeah. stress response happening through the night yeah. and actually get to a place of restoration. Actually got real sleep. rest. Yeah. Yes. So that's such an interesting story because I think then it applies. We can apply that with older kids too. Yes. And you just think about during the day, what do we do? Can we get a, a blanket, throw it in the dryer, warm it up, wrap it around them, give them a tight squeeze for a minute yeah. or two until we feel that, ah, that tension kind of leave yeah. their body and feel that, that, uh, yeah. that they're getting to that calmer place. Yeah. I could give examples yeah. all day. Oh, I know. I was going to add my own here because I both our kids are adopted um, and my youngest has ADHD and our sleep routine is fascinating. So if 
prior to this episode, I, I interview her and I asked her about her experience from the inside out, about what she feels about the world and how she experiences things and and uh, what it's like to hear the word no or to have a transition come or all that stuff. Uh-huh. And, and, and she could go on probably for hours about all the things that we have adopted over the years in her bedtime routine. So the weighted blanket, the fan for white noise, the, and it has to stay novel. So everything has to kind of shift, right? (laughs) But in the control over the bedtime and, and the order in which we do things. So she needed pictures because she couldn't, she couldn't organize thoughts. So she, we had a picture of a toothbrush. We had a picture of the pajamas. We had a picture of, and she got to pick the order in which she did things. And that helped soothe her. And, and yes, warm blanket. I need it in the dryer before I can sleep. I can't sleep without a back rub. <laughs> I need the cold ice, cold water so I can suck on ice. I need to lay on this side with this. Wow. Right. But over time though, it, she still uses all those things. But the difference is she had a severe sleep disorder for four years, could not sleep past the hour mark. And now she sleeps 12, eight, 10 to 12 hours consistently, sleeps, falls asleep within five minutes of actually done the routine. Five minutes later, she's yeah. out cold, right? And and it's not disrupted and it's not, and we all as a result sleep better, right? We all feel rested yeah. in the morning and I have better capacity because I'm not fried. She's not fried, right? We're we're in a, we're in a calmer place, but the amount of, I think, yeah. And when I listened to the example, their first example about the heavy movement, intense movement to channel that almost feels like toxic energy, right? Where it's just at its frayed edges. It's not productive. It needs an escape route. And so to flesh your flesh that out first, um, that that sometimes is counterintuitive for parents who see their kids starting to go up and they think, I don't want to add to the stimulation. And so a lot of the co-regulation piece, I talk to parents about, it's so, I was deceived by this too. Every book that I read, you be your child's calm. To me meant I collect myself first, I go into the chaos and I be Zen. And I'm like, this was backfiring. My kid would go for six hours of dysregulation because she couldn't see that I understood her state because I was not Mm -hmm. reflecting that. And so when I went in and we did intensity together, it was me first meeting where she was at and then working our way back together. Not just me being really steady and calm and her flailing up here with disconnection and going, nobody gets me. I'm on my own over here. What a powerful difference. As soon as we entered her intensity zone, not because I was flipping out, but because I could mirror for her her own experience. Then she could connect with me and we could work our way down. But without that, it was years of us going, we're doing all the right things. We're calm as cucumbers <laughs> for four of the six hours until we can't do it anymore because this is so hard. But I think about that and I'm always trying to undo that learning for parents who hear this, be your child's calm. I'm like, yes, but how are we bringing them to calm? We need to find them first. We can't, we can't just be detached calm on the outside. It's not going to work for them. So I really appreciate that example because that shows parents, I think, oh, that's what that means. That's what that means. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I, I like maybe the phrase, um, be the emotional container, maybe a little oh, bit more good. than to be the calm. Because okay. because we're leading, right? So if we as the adult, we're lead, sort of we enter the interaction with the child, but we're leading it out of a yes. place of 
you know, compassion and yeah. caring and everything. But, so, you know, maybe with your daughter or, or someone similar to that, if we, you know, you go in and they're, they're freaking out about something. And we, we think, okay, I have to be, provide empathy. You're feeling very frustrated and we're trying to be that, or even it, that was a pretty dismissive tone, but, but, oh, I can yeah. see you're really feeling frustrated, but our tone, our language is here. Yeah. Then that's that disconnect versus, wow, you are really, there this is. is really exactly. frustrated. So the energy, and then we can back off. And, and then work here's what way. We, can I help you? Why not? Can I help yes. you? Can we do this? Mm. Yeah. And can I show you by doing it myself? Right. I'm going to take, yes. I'm feeling Great. really um just over the edge, I need some water. My kid will follow me then. Yes. If I say, well, she's dysregulated, <laughs> have a drink of water, she'll throw it at me, right? Which is the difference of, of an invitation and an example, as opposed to instruction when yes. you're, they're, they're dysregulated does not translate because they're not in that part of their brain, right? No. But their and eyes still work, they're watching. And it them. feels like controlling. Yes. They feel like you're you're controlling them and that feels That's frustrating right. to them as well. That so is then, less so then, and even giving and even giving options. Would you like to do this or this at that moment, once they're dysregulated, yeah. that's probably not helpful. And I like the um I'm often um, encouraging parents and caregivers to do what you just said, which is acknowledge their own stress and then ask the child to help them or to come along, you know, or to make yeah. the invitations there if you want to come along with me. Wow, I think I need to take a break. I can, my face is all flushed. I can feel I'm just getting a bit worked up. I'm going to take some deep breaths. Anything else you think I should do? Ask the child to, oh, you think I should take a walk around the block? I think you're right. <sighs> I'm going to take a couple deep breaths. I'm going to go walk around the yard a couple times. You want to come with me? Yeah. And all, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden we're helping them to shift out of that yes. place where they sort of get stuck, right? They're stuck with this. Yep particular idea this particular feeling and they don't know how to get out of that and so we're trying to sort of Completely. bump them into another thing um yes so it's partly a distraction but it's also starting to be the a calming thing to see if they would join us won't always work but no but sometimes won't. it gives them agency i have had that experience right where that sense of i'm in control of something feels soothing compared to that out of control distressed feeling yeah can I can can I talk about um, this? Isn't something we plan to talk about, but I just um, uh, when you mentioned the ADHD thing, because I know that many of the kids, when we have kids who are, you know, don't handle frustration or emotion well, and they tend to have big behaviors, I think one of the easiest diagnoses for them to get early on is attention deficit disorder, and yes, uh, and sometimes that's true, sometimes that's true. But if we just think back to that. Um, that idea of the brain triangles again. So let's imagine again that this child's brain is actually organized like this with the stress response being the thing that's so highly activated, pushing them to a fight or flight. So behavior that looks like ADHD. So we have many children that they, they have an ADHD diagnosis along the way. So again, ADHD does exist and I'm not saying it doesn't, but for many of our kids, they get that diagnosis because, um, and then the intervention on the, on the medical side is to give a stimulant. So the idea is that somehow the stimulant is going to wake up that small triangle at the top, which is the logical brain, the prefrontal cortex, yeah. and help them to manage. But I think with the kids with the trauma histories, what we often see is that, that what's actually driving the bus for them is that physiological stress response and that overreactive yeah. stress response. So when 
um, when there's a diagnosis of ADHD, that typically means that they're going to start with stimulants. And what we found is that, and this may apply to some of your parents, is that stimulant medication for kids with trauma histories often makes things worse because it, it's actually, it's like taking a shot of espresso. It's a stimulant. And so all that physiological arousal and all those emotional things get stimulated along with the prefrontal cortex. So they may be able to concentrate a little bit more on the task, but they're actually much um, having bigger emotional kind of meltdowns. So one of the, the suggestions for kids with a trauma history or that respond in this way is to quiet, do something with medication that would quiet down that stress response. So often that would be intuitive or clonidine. They're actually heart medications. So they're going to decrease the kind of physiological reaction, blood pressure, heart rate. And often when we do that, we find that the, what looks like ADHD behavior in these kids quiets down. They're less reactive, less impulsive, less distractible because we've gotten a little bit more to the root of the problem. So there are kids that have ADHD for sure and where for the stimulant sure. is yeah. going to be helpful. Yeah, but, but that's a good not, differentiation. Yeah. Yeah. And the quality so stimulants so not helpful. Don't what tends to happen is we tend to add more medications. That's right. We increase the dosage and then add more medications and suddenly you've got a child who's on on eight on a stimulant, but also the sparadone right. on antipsychotic yes. medication or oh, other kinds yeah. of medications, which we know can be quite harmful for kids in the long run. Yeah. And so yeah. the um so it's worth a, a try instead on one of these other medications, in tuner or quantity to try and quiet the stress response down and see where we get with that. Yes. I appreciate the distinction there because I, I can see kids who have what I would say is true ADHD and, and, and not that they can't coincide. Like I think you can also have ADHD and trauma and they might yeah, not. Right. Sure. But, but if, if we're talking about how will I know what's the best course of treatment, um, what's going to be most effective for them. I, I think about that difference between when you're on a stimulant, is it, is it just about improving attention or how do they respond? Because our, our experience has been, she's, she has both uh, trauma and ADHD, but the, the stimulant medication actually helps her with her impulsive. It helps the whole thing. So when she mm -hmm. has that experience, she notices and feels better about herself because she gets to feel regulated way mm -hmm. more of her day than she ever did. And so it, it has definitely become, and we've experienced this in, in terms of what I was talking about before of, if I don't match that intensity, she doesn't get the feeling of you understand me. Um, she also needed to have that level of stimulation to feel connected with herself. So the lack of stimulation, it was like, it was this hunger to make it happen because without it, she felt very dysregulated. It was unsettling yeah. for her not to have it. So it was a very different feel, but it's so hard to tease apart. Yes. Right. And, and not without its work around the trauma piece. So all the other stuff that we're doing therapeutically is all trauma lens. But it's just an interesting, I, I really appreciate that. And just not to have this default thing of we're just going to treat a whack of symptoms with a pill. Yeah. We're going to look at what's causing this and what is at its root and really not in a pathological way, but that, that heightened alarm system is there for a reason. It was needed. It developed on purpose. You're not broken. 
that was designed that way to be able to keep you safe. The transition for adoptive and foster parents is often this, like, how do we bridge that gap to the actual environment is now technically safe? We have the stability. How do we let your nervous system match that? And this is the movement of like, that is not an easy, that's not an easy course. But I hear what your program does is offer the bridge. It offers the transition into how do we readapt our alarm systems, recalibrate those in our kids so that they get that they no longer need that hypersensitivity to their surroundings in order to keep them legitimately safe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, so I would like to talk about how parents can, I I always want to add a practical piece to this and not, not instructional necessarily, but practical in the sense of we can get really theoretical about this stuff. But when parents are listening, I always want them to, when they hit off and stop, I want them to go, I know today what I'm going to do differently. So in all the experience you've had, and you've named a bit of it, but I'm wondering if you can leave parents with a couple of things. Could you name for them one or two things that they could do today that you know will make a difference for them? Like that, that it is part of what trauma needs in order to heal. What can parents in a, in a position like that help stay focused on to help their kids do that? Uh, yeah, wow. Um, uh, so many ideas come to mind as you're, as you're talking there. I just think that the, you know, we really try and stress with our teams that this, this piece about we've got to quiet that stress response system. So that's got to be our number one go-to thing. So we're setting up reminders for ourselves, that idea of doing this preventatively throughout the day. So, you know, um, so I would experiment with things experiment with three or four things that you can do with the child that are sensory based and see which ones your child likes. So for instance, nice. one child might like um, a scent of something. They take some deep breaths of lavender or I don't know, marshmallow or whatever they, whatever yep. sense they like. What, what sense do they, would they describe as, oh, when I take some big breaths of this, it makes me feel calm. Maybe it's sage. Um, what are those things? Or is it something more tactile? So give them something to rub in their hands. Give them something yeah. to like some, give me these like a Play-Doh kind of thing or something they can sort of squish in their hands and ask them to <laughs> kind of read their bodies, right? What's so if, I, if I'm squeezing a squish ball in my hand, how does that make me feel when I'm doing that? Um, if we take some deep breaths, like let's take five deep breaths and then let's try and see how does that make me feel versus this and yeah. sort of try and sort of differentiate a little bit between the things that your child seems to respond to. One of nice. the, one of the things you might, they might want to consider is um, creating kind of a, you know, calming box, a little shoe box full of those things that your child has said that they like. And so you're not going to pull this out once they're dysregulated because the items in the box will get thrown all over the room and thrown in your face. Correct. You, but yep. this is, preventative right so this is okay so before we transition on to that next thing before we do this let's why don't you grab your calming box and choose something out of that and you know use that for five minutes um something that yeah so, so, so front loading. examples of kind of front loading for sure okay um and and um you know really thinking that 
if we think about that stress staircase, children are moving up through that stress staircase through the day, just as we are, and yeah. they're getting, um, and it's getting harder and harder to regulate. So by the end of the school day, they're exhausted. Yeah, there it is. Just as we are before dinner time, right? So um, I guess the other, so thinking about how do we just kind of help to reset, help to reset, help to reset as often as possible. And a lot of that has to do with monitoring our own stress level. What are those times of the day when we are overstressed that we need to slow ourselves down first? Right. It's like, Important it's kind of the data. idea of um, like being on the airplane and there's some kind of issue and then the oxygen masks yeah. pop up. What do they say? As the adult, yeah. put yours on first. Put on yourself first. Yeah. And then on the child, right? So it'd be that sort of idea. Like, what do I have to do to stick, keep, get myself to a calmer place before yeah. I then go interact with the child who's starting to drive me crazy? Because if I don't uh, regulate myself, and yeah. I'm going to walk into that. Uh, so you're prepared yeah. for and escalate, co-escalate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I have heard in a lot of dialogue with parents that one of the things that we have um, landed on is lead with connection. That um, for any kids who struggle with uh, regulating emotion or moving from one thing to another, to not just impart the instruction because that's shocking to their systems and puts them on alert. So if I have something where I'm saying, okay, it's dinner time, I don't just go flying into my daughter's room and say, okay, dinner time. I might be happy. I might think she's excited for dinner. So to me, this is not a stressful thing. I think, yay, she'll be happy. I get to tell her that we're having barbecued pork and she'll be all over that, right? And then I go in there and it's disrupting to whatever mind shoot she's been in, right? So whatever space and, and that alone, doesn't matter what I've said. It doesn't matter what it is. The fact that I'm shocking her out of that place into what I need from her is enough, right? And that could be the end of it for the night. So then the lead with connection has been the buffer of, would you, does that work? Do you, is this just my experience? Cause I, I, I've, I've walked in and said, Oh, what are you doing? And I sit down or I don't say anything. I just sit there so that they notice my presence first. And then I gauge what their emotional state is. And are they looking at me? Are they checking in? Are they ignoring me and don't have any awareness that I'm there? Right. And as soon as I find the connection, then I say, okay, dinner's ready. She'll get up and she'll come. But without the leading with connection, I find that that doesn't work for her. Right. I, are you fine? Do you find that? Do, does it make a difference in the big picture for people? Absolutely. I, I really love that example um, because it's so easy for us. Again, that's a time when you're probably a bit stressed because you're trying to get dinner out. You've been busy. And yeah. so um, so then we're walking in with that, not just an agenda, but also some stress about it. And I think, you know, even myself, I caught myself when my kids were young, sort of standing in the middle of the room, shouting instructions, you know, like the yes. sergeant major yeah. sort of thing. Right. And and we know that for kids who are, you know, have more challenges, that that doesn't work. But coming and joining with them before moving on to whatever that request is or the warning that, oh, in five minutes we're going to have dinner, but you've made that connection first and that's grounding to them. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a wonderful approach. As we, as we wrap up today's conversation, I don't want to leave without, and I, and I know you have this approach and this mindset and I, and I, it's, it's the only guests I will really engage with are people who come from this perspective of shame reduction for parents. I, I am so acutely aware of how many parents 
hold off getting help for so long because they're so ashamed of reactions they've had with their kids, a lack of knowledge about how to meet them where they're at, or even been part of part of the early years of not being able to feel regulated enough to offer that to their kids. And so we know that we've participated in trauma. And, and I, I want parents to hear that there are so many legitimate reasons why we ourselves walk in this world with other stressors and dysregulated systems. And we have pasts and histories and baggage and all the stuff that shapes and molds us to being highly attuned in the world too. And that circumstances of all kinds, right? Like I, could you name some of the things that really aren't always preventable, right? Poverty or, the couch serving piece, this isn't a necessarily a choice anybody's making, right? This is an intergenerational piece, perhaps, or can you speak to some of that before we end? Yeah, I think I think you that you already um, you know, gave such a nice overview of that. But I, I think that um, all parents, all caregivers have their own history that they're bringing to it. So they've got their own history of, um, of attachment there. So whether their yeah. parents were kind of attuned That's to right. them, were caring for them, whether or not. Yeah. Um, they've learned parenting styles from their own parents and caregivers, um, and they're likely to do the same thing or perhaps do the exact opposite. In reaction, um, the opposite, yeah. In, in reaction, yeah. And so, um, you know, I guess one of the things that, that's so important to me is that well and what we've seen over you know, 12 years now with really challenging situations is that We've seen that kids can still grow and develop. Their brains can mature and they can heal. And yeah. so, so I think that, um, you know, that, and, and that's not perfect parenting, perfect caregiving. That's caregivers who are starting to shift and gradually to learn to view their that's children right. differently, to, um, to gradually respond in a more effective kind of way with more empathy, more connecting as you're talking about. Um, yeah. taking the time to, to decrease their stress level and child stress level. What we've seen, we, I talked about earlier about seven developmental domains. What we've seen, what our data says, is that we've seen significant gains for the average child across every one of those seven domains. So things that I, as a psychologist, I would have not really believed would happen. So things where we thought there were these kind of um, the neurological challenges were like sensory issues, let's say, where they're really just kind of super oversensitive to sensory issues uh, that seemed to be such an ingrained thing low down in the brain it'd be hard to change but we've seen that change and quiet down when we do enough of the other things sort of good enough uh, good enough caregiving good enough parenting um, even things around like thinking and, and your cognitive abilities and language and memory those yes. improve so we've just yeah. seen improvements across every one of those domains that i mentioned earlier when we and that doesn't matter whether the child was four when we started or the child was 15, that we've been able to see that kind of growth on a consistent basis Amazing. by stepping back and applying the sort of trauma-informed principles. So we're looking at, you know, I talked about, uh, I'd mentioned therapeutic bookends, one of which was decreasing that stress response. The other one is deepening attachment. Part of yes. that is trying to prevent further attachment injuries. I think this is something our ministry struggles with. Because yep. we have an idea that um, uh, the biological parents have a right to certain connection with their child. But what I see sometimes is that we're actually forcing kids into situations where they're being further traumatized. Their mm -hmm. attachment wounds are being torn open every time they go to visit the parent because the parent hasn't 
um, themselves sort of healing them up to be in a good spot. Um, mm. And so, so, so I think deepening attachment, making that connect, connect first, as you said, um, yeah. and also kind of preventing further attachment injury when we can, or at least slowing that down so that the new yes. attachment can be, um, start to be the foundation, the positive foundation. And then when kids are ready, then we bring those um, original attachments back in when they're in a, in a healthier place. But I guess going back to the question about, you know, what do we say to parents? There's a, lots of reasons you could have ended up being where you are. I've got my own, you know, memories of a couple of times that I'm just kind of ashamed of my own experience. Yeah. And I think I was a, overall a pretty good parent. I came out of a good like good family and I think I was a pretty good parent, but I remember yelling at my little infant who wouldn't stop crying at one time. Yeah. And I just was you know, going on and on and on and night after night after night. And I'm just like, why won't you shut up? Right. And, you know, exactly. and so embarrassed, embarrassed about that. But we know that, I guess what I'd like to encourage your audience with is that we know that if we can start doing enough of the good things, that this will pay off. Kids, there's any time in life when kids' brains can change and when we can yeah. set a new path, it's in childhood, right? So the earlier yes. we can get started, yeah. let's do something right today. Let's do a little better today than we did yesterday. Um, Beautiful. And and kids are often going to forgive us, aren't they, for the yeah, times they we Yeah, they are. They're so resilient. Yeah. Our connection is really powerful, right? That underlay cord of connection. It, it helps with a lot of the bumps and bruises along the way, for sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that hopeful statement. That was very, um, is really helpful to end on that. I appreciate that. Um, and for, for parents who are in this and it feels like the muddiest path, um, I'm, find the resources that are going to help you. Partly when I started creating online resources, it was to also reach parents who didn't feel ready to sit in person, who wanted to do some of this in a quieter private space of doing the learning and not feel like there was a spotlight on them or they might be judged in some way. And so um, I, I know that because that's a, a perspective you offer and a framework you come from as well, that your courses are safe for people to learn from. So I'm just going to remind people to um, check out the coupon codes for the courses for you and for, for my co-regulation one, because both are suited for this topic and I think might be a good starting point for parents if they're confused about where to reach out. Um, and there's so much more out there. And as you said, there's always hope for brain restructuring. We're not done developing. So yeah, it's excellent. Thank you for today's conversation. And for everybody listening, thanks for being here. I appreciate you offering to have me on with you. Good, very interesting discussion. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, where you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.